0: Welcome to the Good Friday edition of the podcast. The toughest looking kid I ever saw had at 17 more prison looking tats than 50 year old dudes I knew. He walked into the room of other tough kids like they were all posers, and he was a tiger (laughs) in a jungle full of rabbits. And I wasn't new to the game, and most of those kids were repeat offenders, so we all knew that he was not posing. And my job was to take him a Bible, to introduce myself as a chaplain. And I got to tell you, when I went in that room with him by myself, I was a bit nervous. The kid kind of scared me. He was easily twice my size, and he just bore intensity on his body. Well, we began to talk in his room, and I I don't know what happened. I don't remember what we even talked about now so long ago, but after about 10 or 15 minutes, His body slacked a little, and his eyes grew softer and softer. And then we began to talk about his kids. He had two daughters, and he was 17. I went home that night shaking. I remember standing outside on my deck, and I'm probably not supposed to say this, but I smoked a cigarette to calm down. And I looked up at the sky, and I wondered how such things could actually happen. And what's funny about it is they actually do. They did, they do, a lot. There is no sky I remember as well, position of all of those stars as the sky behind my house in Tennessee after nights at the prison. If only such a story was unique, was special, was an exception and not the rule. But I remember him so well, not because his story was so unique. I remember because. I saw in him that thicker than prison concrete is a prison of our sin. And the second is that the night that I left him, he hung himself with his belt. I'm pleased to say that they saved his life, but I know that they didn't save his soul. And I can't remember his name. But on Good Friday, I remember him for some reason. A thief on the cross, I guess. Guilty. Oh, he was guilty. But his daddy was gone, and his mom was a drunk, and his friends were all left with no adults to supervise them in a very adult world, and Grandma couldn't control him. So now he was a daddy that was also gone. A daddy of two daughters, and I can only wonder about them. And I can't help but see in the story with Cassandra's curse this spiral of brokenness that they will also continue. How could they not? But, oh, that blessed moment, right? <laughs> that moment where, where those of us who, who don't have that cycle can see them pull into a Planned Parenthood or pull out their EBT card or watch the police roll down the street one more time and pull into that same driveway because, oh, in that moment, we get to feel better than them. And that is sometimes the best feeling of all. And this is a glimpse into what the Bible calls sin. Because last night, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus who healed the sick, who fed the hungry, who called people to find their peace with God and their peace in one another. The one who cast out demons and straightened crooked arms and broken feet, who touched leopards. and But we were so used to darkness. Jesus said, actually, at one point in John 3, just after he He told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he sent his own son. He says in the very next breath, but people love darkness more than light because they're used to the dark. And the light is scary. It's too bright. So what could we do? Jesus had to die. His light was so bright it blinded us, and we so used to darkness, only accustomed to hate. Couldn't understand, couldn't fathom even what he was talking about. Because he disturbed our peace, he disturbed the status quo. He had the audacity to shake up the way things were. Because he dared to suggest that all this generosity that was flowing quite literally from his fingers was the real will of God, and that God's will was that we do the same. So we tried him in the dead of night. They passed him from ruler to ruler, from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, to Herod to Pilate again, each time reshaming, each time rehumiliating, re resetting the fact that Jesus is but one small piece and that everyone around him is greater. A new humiliation of the powerful oppressing the innocent. We read that the men guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded and demanded, laughing, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they said many other insulting things as they mocked him. Put on the royal robe. You can imagine the blood just soaking through that purple, making it dark and black. The blood running down his face and blinding his eyes and filling his mouth as the crown of thorns is set upon him. And And they... set it in place by hitting him in the head with rods. Even though Pilate was nervous about the strangeness of the whole sequence, he brings Rome's general treatment of criminals to bear against Jesus. You strip them naked. You beat them. You hang them on a cross to suffocate. Israel was not a stranger to crucifixion. This is not a unique thing. To show Israel that Rome was in charge, they often... Erected crosses along the road to Jerusalem so that when you went up to worship in the temple, you could see your brothers and sisters dying, and you could see that you could do nothing about it, so that you could know that Rome was Lord. And I imagine the crowd. Imagine being in a crowd and hating anyone enough to cheer for that kind of death. But man, there are so many stories of Christians getting together to watch the lynchings of black people. Stories of, 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 of up to thousands of people gathering to cheer on the degradation of a human being. And of course, I'm talking about within the past generation, 30 miles from where I lived in Tennessee. And then again, I remember being a student mall as I was in college, surrounded by men and women training for ministry as they cheered for the bombs that were dropped on Baghdad, killing as many as ten times the amount of civilians killed in 9-11. Whether they thought the political move was right or not, there in the student mall, they cheered over the dead. So I guess I probably could cheer very easily for the death of Jesus. I just need to, to get him to be more dangerous to my status quo than my aversion to being a bad guy. And on they went to the hill called the Skull, where they hung the Lord of Glory. Pilate, ever the man of irony, had a sign put upon the cross in three languages. Get that, three languages. Now, you don't put a sign up with three languages unless you really want to make a strong point. And this should tell us exactly the kind of point Pilate hoped to make. His point being this, Jesus is not your Lord, and if you thought he was, this is how you will end up, because now you can see your real Lord is Caesar. But but the Bible teaches you to love paradoxes, because God seems to constantly deal in them, because that is exactly the kind of king the great prophet Isaiah said we should expect. He told us hundreds of years before that God would send a servant and that this servant would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was on him and that by his wounds we are healed. That we, each one of us like sheep have gone astray, turned to our own ways, and that the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquity. Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, Jesus, who came to serve, is ripped from the world by our fear and our evil. And in this sense, Jesus' story is archetypal. It's the story of every instance of slavery, of every instance of child abuse, of every instance of innocence crushed by oppression. It is, in a word, a symbol of the broken world. And my friends, this is a broken world, and that should cause us to lament. That even when the beauty of God, especially, especially when the beauty of God shows up right in front of us, we hide like Adam and Eve in the garden again. And yet even in the cross, I'm caught by the wonder. Because even from the cross, Jesus shouts forgiveness. Even while he hung there, clearly defeated, clearly dying, his enemies stood there, mocked him, laughed at him, said he could save others. Why doesn't he save himself? Why would you mock a defeated man? Well, it's because it reifies our own rightness. If we were wrong, that would have been us. But, But we're not wrong because that's him, not me. But if you are a thief... If you are already at the bottom, already dying of the systems that happened to you, and which you also willingly gave yourself to, because both are equally true, you too might see in the darkness a spark of light. But the thief whose faith is so last ditch, maybe even last breath, he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus, who himself is dying, (laughs) speaks grace. Today you will be with me in paradise. I come from a church tradition that is often uncomfortable with this text. It seems too good to be true. It seems unbelievable. I mean, he was still a thief, wasn't he? His statement of allegiance really isn't much to go on. But it it seemed to be more than enough for Jesus. As one author put it, every time God forgives us, God is saying that God's own rules do not matter as much as the relationship that God wants to create with us. That seems to be what the cross is trying to show us. And today as I ponder the cross of Christ, as I ponder my own sin, so, so similar to every sin that nailed him to the cross on this day so long ago, so alive still in me, I am reminded of that young man, the most scary, scared man I've ever met. And I wish I remembered his name more than anything today. I think I wish I remembered his name. But the cross gives me hope in the darkness that, while I have forgotten his name, Jesus has not. Peace and strong coffee.